Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. And I remember, you know, in sort of the late 80s, it was 25, 30 megs a year of production installation. And my aha moment in solar was going out to the Altamont Pass and seeing 500 megawatts of wind turbines out there. And, yeah. you know, just looking across the field and saying, oh, wow, over my career, I... I hope I can do something like that, right? Half a gigawatt. And here we are, we've got 10 gigs. And last quarter, you know, we were shipping over 100 megs a week for, you know, many weeks. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle. A battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey there, and welcome to episode 57 of Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I am so glad that you've chosen this episode to fill your ears today. And I promise you will not be disappointed. Happy Cyber Monday to those of you who are getting your internet shopping on today. And since you're already distracted from work, I guess you figured, what the heck, I'll go listen to Suncast today too. Well, I'm glad that you did, and I've got a doozy for you today as we get to have the much-anticipated part two of episode number 39 from Dan Sugar of Next Tracker. Now, back in episode 39, we launched what I call the Solar Pioneer series, and Dan was the first episode, and you guys ate it up. Fastest downloaded episode so far on the podcast, and well over a 1,000 downloads now and counting. I'm running a number of these so-called series this year, as you may have noticed. I just launched the Storage series with Travis, and I'm working on actually having each one of these series on its own page on mysuncast.com earlier next year. So don't worry, you'll be able to find not only the Solar Pioneer series, but the Storage series and the upcoming Finance series. There are a bunch of these interviews still yet to come in the Pioneer series, and I am super excited to bring these to you. But this week, we've got Dan back on the show, and it took a little while. You may recall episode 39 was all the way back in July coinciding with InterSolar. I tried to get Dan back right after SPI and our travel schedules didn't coordinate. But yeah, this conversation attempts to pick back up on the traditional interview questions that I try to get into. And if you know Dan, then you can expect it didn't exactly go according to my agenda. But along the way, we do touch on how the evolution of the car industry and the solar industry are not that different. What Dan has learned and passes along from the key mentors and colleagues along his journey. Dan's advice to you budding entrepreneurs out there, and what one book Dan has given away the most and why. And of course, what's in Dan's crystal ball? And not just for after the pending trade case, of course, and we do get into that, but much further into the future. You'll want to stay through the end of this episode as it is once again chock full of goodies. And I know there's been a slight lull in production these last few weeks. I apologize for that, and of course I know because it's my fault. I've had to take a break, not just for the holidays, but also my crazy travel schedule and to get better organized for 2018 for you guys to be able to provide you with 
the value that I know that you expect from Suncast. And I hope that you will believe that what's coming is a better than ever Suncast. I'll still be doing these series-style episodes and Tactical Tuesdays, and we'll be rolling out some new collaborations as well. In fact, tomorrow is the next Tactical Tuesday with Edme Kelsey. I'm bringing her back. Many of you liked her episode, and I asked Edme to come back and drill down on a specific topic that I think you'll appreciate. How do I know? Because several of you asked me for it. (laughs) To that end, I'm stoked that you guys take any time at all to give me your feedback. And you can do that through email, a LinkedIn message, or even just pop over to the website. Leave me a voicemail right from your smartphone. That website is mysuncast.com, and the email is nico at mysuncast.com. If you think that you have something or someone that should be on the show, let me know. That's how many have come to be guests on Suncast. Apart from being my friends, I have gotten to know folks like Travis and upcoming Brian Bursick from Wonder Capital. Folks, just reach out and say, hey, I think this guy or that gal or this company should be featured on Suncast, and here's why. Hey, finally, before we head into the episode, of course, I want to mention that it's brought to you in partnership with my friends at soulrates.com, the fast and free online platform for providing your commercial customers with a credible lease financing proposal. And Soulrates 2.0 is about to drop, and there are some really fun things that Dustin and the team have for you if you're looking at how to get your commercial projects financed. If you're interested and you'd like to quickly and easily deliver a financing proposal to your customers, head to mysuncast.com forward slash soulrates and click on the request an invitation button. All right. Thanks again for taking the time to be here. Enjoy this week's episode of Suncast, the long-awaited part two from episode 39. It's the Redux with the man you know as the Suge, Dan Sugar. All right. So I am at long last back in the office with the Suge here in Fremont, Paseo Padre, headquarters for all things innovative in ground mount structures and tracking that giant helios in the atmosphere so dan it's good to be back here thanks for inviting me back pleasure nico welcome it's probably my own fault that we didn't get a chance to finish episode one in a succinct time manner but it was probably also me wanting the the chance to sneak in and get an episode two so here we go i do have a typical interview flow that kind of goes through a list of questions. But a lot's happened since we last chatted, so I thought maybe we would just riff a little bit about current events. I'm sure they will feed back into the storyline of the things that are important and true about Next Tracker's leadership in the, in the industry and the industry as a whole, really leading power generation globally. I was thinking about the fact that when I last saw you, we were at SPI. When we last recorded, it was InnerSolar, where you introduced the Fusion product. But since then, we've had an enormous amount of global chaos and conflict imposed on us by Mother Earth, right? So I'd love to hear the reaction from Next Tracker customers globally, and maybe just in our hemisphere, but on the heels of, what, three Class 5 hurricanes? Lord knows what else uh, we may have encountered here, but there's been some devastation. I know you guys have a lot of product uh, installed in hurricane-prone and earthquake-prone zones. Mention uh, Gigawatt almost in Mexico at, at the Villanueva site, so... Uh, what are your thoughts on the notion of and how how are your sites doing around these natural disasters and resiliency and how that's being built into the, the forecast in the future? 
Yeah, thanks for the question. It's been a pretty wild ride with all the natural disasters. And, you know, for anybody impacted by that, you know, we, we really, uh, our heart goes out to them. We've done what we can to help support recovery efforts. You mentioned stuff inflicted by Mother Earth. You know, I think uh, what the data from NASA shows is that the intensity of the storms, in particular the rainfall, is a function of temperature. And so, you know, the amount of rain and some of the intensity of those, I think man and people, you know, really have a piece in that. But we really took this opportunity. We had previously, uh, last year, when Hurricane Matthew hit, which was a devastating storm on the East Coast, something like a million farm animals died in that storm. We went and evaluated how uh, our systems performed in that. And actually, we had no damage in Hurricane Matthew. Well, when Hurricane Irma, some of these other recent storms came in, we had 33 systems that were impacted by those storms. When those hurricanes came ashore, they had over 100 miles an hour wind speed. With our digital O&M platform, we were able to essentially evaluate how the entire system was working and automatically put them into a safe stow standpoint uh, before the storms hit. And I'm pleased to say that we had zero damage from any of those natural disasters. Now, there's two things that are attributable to that. One, the key gear that we have in our system is like a motor drive controller. So that stuff's way up off the ground, more like chest level instead of ankle or knee level. And then the other thing is we spent a lot of time pioneering how these structures behave from a fluid mechanics standpoint. Some folks like on LinkedIn were showing in Puerto Rico, some of the fixed structures actually were damaged in wind. And the reason for that is if you have a a fixed structure at a low angle, when the wind blows over it, it, there's a lot of lift like with an airplane. But with a tracker, you have the ability to command the system to be uh, with an advanced stow algorithm so that it it actually reduces those dynamic wind forces and the lift forces. So anyway, yeah, we were really thankful that basically there were no damage to our systems as a result of those weather events. Fantastic. Did you have anything in, uh, I'm guessing the, the earthquakes in Mexico didn't affect your assets there? No, fortunately, on the as you mentioned, we're building this 750 megawatt project, Villa Nueva with NL. Now it's most of our, our materials delivered. That's happened since our, your last visit a few months yeah. ago. Yeah, the system's on a, a good track to a smooth completion. Uh, we had no no damage, but we weren't right at the epicenter. It was uh, it was a bit away from where our site was. You mentioned Villanueva and Anel. I know you guys have been cranking along, not just in Mexico, but Australia and around the world. If I recall correctly, SPI, you announced that you had reached a first ever milestone for trackers. Is that right? 10 gigawatts? <laughs> Yeah, so 10 gigawatts. So <laughs> let's just let's just think about that for a second. So again, I started in solar in the in the 80s and I remember, you know, in sort of the late 80s, it was 25 30 megs a year of production installation and my aha moment in solar was going out to the Altamont Pass and seeing 500 megawatts of wind turbines out there and yeah. you know, just looking across the field and saying, "Oh, wow, over my career I I hope I can do something like that, right? Half a gigawatt. And here we are, we've got 10 gigs. And last quarter, you know, we were shipping over 100 megs a week for, you know, many weeks. And so, you know, our capacity is there. And, you know, the market, the fundamentals are great. We've had issues in the U.S. that we can uh, perhaps chat on later. But mm-hmm. to have 10 gigawatts, taking a step back, it's, it's sort of a mind-blowing 
amount of capacity, but I really think that's solar sort of 2.0. We need yeah. to like crank it up to the next level now. Yeah, especially when you see, I mean, it's 30 gigawatts alone in China, right? Like these guys are just killing it in the, in the emerging market. One of the things that blows me away in our first conversation, we spoke a lot about your planning process. One of the things that you really drilled down on was how you sit with your team and you think about scale and you think about targets and metrics. And I recall, you know, you guys had set like a gigawatt target and you blew past it, right? I'm curious and probably we'll roll in here. I have a two-part question. One is where did you have 10 gigawatts on your timeline, your growth timeline, right? Because it was 20... 15 that you hit a gigawatt. Is that right? 2014? We achieved that first gig in 2015. That's right. And right. In about half the anticipated time. So I think it's fair to say from when we launched the company, we've grown about twice as fast as we intended. Right. And the, the second question is like it. And I have a feeling it has a lot to do with some strategic moves that you took that we discussed in episode one. What do you attribute that growth to? You mentioned solar 2.0, but I'd really know, love to know just internally if you think there was a key ingredient to achieving this feat faster than anyone had expected that you would. The thing I've consistently gotten wrong in my career is underestimating how fast the industry could grow. Yeah. And so the fundamentals are just at a fantastic place. So, you know, I don't think it's one thing. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a series of elements that helps you grow, grow a company and really perform. And so one you know, we spoke about the strategic moves we made to basically align with some large customers. Uh, we, we worked initially with Sun Edison, which right. at that time was the largest pipeline generator in the world. We developed, we did a uh, 1.85 gigawatt MSA that we delivered a year ahead of time. And they had worked with other products, but had some issues with and, and wanted to move ahead and saw the opportunity to leapfrog and improve their economics with our design. And then we worked with other great customers. The next large MSA we had was Blattner. So we, we were working ahead with these customers. And then Swinerton was another one of our very early customers. And then we Sorry, developed... FRV as well as another. We've uh, also done projects with FRV. That's right. And so I think, you know, basically targeting customers that were creating a lot of demand and then delivering and then a, a lot of repeat business and relationship business. So that was sort of one element, you know, building a team with highly functional relationships within the company and then systems that allowed scaling was sort of part two. Part three would be really diversifying our manufacturing centers and, and supply base. So today we're manufacturing on five continents. And we're serving customers on five continents. Right. So I think that was really important. And also it helps you when you get into situations like we're experiencing today where the U.S. market took a serious hit with the the trade case activity that's happening now. Mm -hmm. It provides you as a company the resilience to serve other markets, um, you know, as one market is impacted other markets, you can keep performing it. Yeah, we and we did talk a little bit before about the merger with Flex. It's a global company, major balance sheet. It gives you the ability to have uh, not just flexible manufacturing, but flexible funds, if you will, and the ability to to grow uh, uncon- in, in, relatively unconstrained compared with the the pre Flex days. So, how's that going in terms of your your global rollout? As expected, better than expected. You know, Flex is coming off of a banner quarter, one of the best ever. 
what's your reflection? Uh, is this another shooting star that you grabbed, or you know, is, how how uh, how do you view this? Well, when Flex approached us about doing the merger initially, for me, it came down to fit with the key executive team there and what their strategic direction was. One nice thing is that they have strengths in multiple industries, including medical, automotive, and energy. So they're a diversified uh, conglomerate manufacturing company, and that provides a lot of stability as you go forward. Speaking on the people, the CEO, Mike McNamara, personally took the company from $100 million to $25 billion. Right. The president we work with, Doug Britt, is one of the top execs I've worked with in the industry. And Scott Grable, who basically built the energy business there, is just amazing and a great strategic partner for us. So we had a great fit with the team. Now, the company Flex, they're extremely well run. Today, they have earnings statement last week, balance sheet, $1.4 billion of cash. Uh, the company throws off you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of positive cash flow every quarter. The stock price consistently is sort of up and to the right. It's super well-run company. So they're also investment grade. And so uh, that means a lot to folks that own solar power systems. And so it's been a great relationship. Now, the, the strategically, we look at entering a market that's complex and hard to do business in, like Brazil, mm. which has a lot of rules, operating in the country, getting your cash out of the country, all those things. This is where the strategic benefits of being aligned with a company like that come into play. For example, in Brazil, there are local requirements for manufacturers. So Flex had an existing SMT line to make uh, circuit boards and things like that. We're making our controller on their one of their top lines in that country uh, we're able to work with their existing unit. Flex has 12,000 people in Brazil. You know, Next Tracker's team, we could just work with it within their offices and so forth and right. then leverage that. So that's a strategic option for global expansion, you know, where we need to go into countries, we can set up, stand up a, a unit, a Next Tracker unit quite quickly within one of those Flex centers. I love that you have decoupled exposure to your home state, if you will, the United States, and uh, mm -hmm. certainly a, a massive part of your growth. And uh, I would say even stability is the what has been the uh, dramatic boom of the United States market. And you guys are now, you know, mul doing multi gigawatts in India, Australia, Mexico, as we mentioned. But for those of us who perhaps are just listening to Suncast for the first time, and are really just concerned about what's going on here at home, so certainly because we're in the same sphere in LinkedIn, I see a lot of your commentary, the current trade case. And I feel like you've got a good position on it. You're well in touch with Abby and the SIA team. And I know that you guys are doing a lot of advocacy there. Could you maybe, for our benefit, bring us up to speed on perhaps, we'll call it the SIA perspective, and then maybe how you see it as Dan Sugar from Next Tracker's perspective as well? SIA's done an amazing job, and it's great to have Abby in as a leader. She's doing, Abby Hopper's doing a tremendous job as executive director. And if you look, you know, I, I was on the board of SIA, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. Pedigree of the, the folks involved in, in SIA leadership has really gone to a fantastic level. So it's really nice to have the industry come together. And that's what was so infuriating about this trade case, where you had essentially a hedge fund in New York mm. that had extended an improperly collateralized loan to a Chinese manufacturer that had a, an interest in a tier two cell manufacturer. And the names of all these parties are the hedge fund is SQN and the 
Chinese manufacturer is Shengfeng, and the tier two cell manufacturer was Seneva. And so to have that situation where Shengfeng defaulted on a, on a loan to SQN precipitate this trade case was just completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. As a reflected on it, we essentially we've blown a year of the 30% ITC while the industry mm-hmm. projects got slowed down because no one knows what the price of solar panels is going to be next year. So yeah. it was really completely unnecessary. And it was the result of some self-serving companies that set out to do that. Now, we want to incentivize manufacturing. I've been in the shoes of being, you know, in my previous job, I was CEO of Solaria, which was a, a panel manufacturer, right? And yeah, you see low-cost products come in from Asia. So why is that? How structurally, why do those products come in like that? What's the remedy? The reason that manufacturing goes to Asia often is not that the labor cost is lower. So that's a myth. The reason is, is that availability of capital and the cost of capital. So at the time, I was looking at putting a manufacturing asset anywhere in the world. You know, we we had, you know, we could have put it anywhere. You know, we had, at that time, China was saying, hey, put it here. We'll provide this huge loan to you at really low interest costs, and here's free land and subsidized power. Okay, so it what it essentially comes down to is industrial policy. Now, industrial policy became sort of a, a dirty phrase in this country a couple decades ago. And it was like, well, gee, you know, we really don't want our banks competing with the government for funding. Well, that sounds good. But if you're a manufacturer, you know, my view at that time was, hey, I can compete with a, a, a manufacturer from China or anywhere else, but I can't compete with the Chinese government. So, what the closest thing we've come to that in this country is when the uh, we had the horrible economic recession in 2009. In the United States, we created the American Recovery Act, or called the Recovery Act. Right. And so this is the thing that put forth the loan for GM, which saved GM, yeah. which I think everyone thinks is a really good thing. Right. It, most or all of it's been repaid. They provided the loan for Tesla, which helped Tesla create Tesla, which got repaid early with interest. So that was a industrial policy, and that's proactive industrial policy. So the issue right now, the structural problem we have is that as manufacturers in the States, is you're competing against these countries like Malaysia and others that provide these loans to incentivize uh, manufacturing value. So that's a really hard thing, but it's really the cost of capital issue, not the labor issue. So. To deal with that, the, the worst way to deal with that would be to deal with it with tariffs. Uh, what SIA came up with, which was a clever equalizer, if you will, was to say, look, the administration has the right to sell licenses for other manufacturers in other countries to serve our market. So why don't we mm-hmm. do something like provide a license fee? I think SIA came up with you know, one or two equivalent pennies per watt for other like photovoltaic manufacturers sell in the United States, that actually generates a hell of a lot of revenue, would kick off hundreds of millions of dollars a year, which could be divvied up in a pro rata basis among domestic manufacturers. So that was a clever way to deal with that structural issue. But the, the core of the issue is really an industrial policy issue. Complex. And only on this program could we take the time to actually speak it through. It's not a soundbite thing you can talk about you know, in, in, in 16 seconds. And it's difficult to even, as you mentioned, to even capture in a written piece, right? When you're trying to yes. put a soundbite into LinkedIn that folks would, would click right. through to and, and that you could have any level of thought leadership there. Well, I appreciate you providing insight there. So do you think that 
uh, you know, I mean, I, I have some friends in the in the Chinese solar manufacturing side mm-hmm. of the business, right? I worked at Trina, and mm-hmm. one of my best friends is at, uh, is at Seraphim. They seem to be breathing a sigh of relief. Here we are the, a few days after the latest announcement. So what's your assessment? Do you think that this is going to put... This is going to right the horse. Uh, do you think it's still going to slow down utility development? How is it affecting your forecast for uh, for the year? For oh, definitely, definitely. The the industry's taken the total amount of capacity that'll be installed. You know, in the next couple quarters, compared to a year ago, is going to be a mm. fraction. I'd say it would be down at least in the utility scale by fifty percent. Wow! This was part of my testimony. There's actually uh, I have posts uh, out there on this mm. particular subject with numbers. Yeah, it'll be way down. But, you know, basically the ITC came out with a recommendation for, you know, depending on the, the commissioner, you know, 30-ish percent tariff. And, but that's additive to the countervailing duty anti-dumping tariff. You know, the number is actually higher. Hmm. But the point is, is the administration's completely uh, volatile. We don't know where it's going to land. No one really does. Right. So it just, you know, business... There's still but, uncertainty. Yeah, the thing business, yeah. you know, and projects... It's, no one knows what panels are really going to cost. That's so, right. You know, it's it's and therefore, if if you can push a, a COD out, you will. If you can, uh, yeah. If you can slow a project down, you will until there's certainty. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. So not a good thing. I'm going to move on to a section that I call hot or hype. We'll take specific topics. You'll spend thirty or sixty seconds on whether or not you think it's hot or all hype. Okay. Okay. So sounds fun. We'll yeah. We'll start with the Latin American market as the fastest growing market in the solar world. It it was, in fact, when GTM made that quote, we've seen fits and starts. How do you feel about the Latin American market right now? Definitely still hot. Uh, We're seeing a lot of ongoing demand in Mexico and other places. Uh Yeah, it's a great market. So not a, not worried. Obviously, you guys aren't worried about the Brazil market because you have uh, you have the ability to, to to take some of the local. Well, the loans Brazil and, no, the Brazil market cooled off a bit. They basically mm-hmm. skipped a cycle on what they call their auctions. Right. So the new ones are happening, but yeah, no, it slowed down. I mean, the economy is challenged. They're having a horrible drought, which a lot of the power generation comes from hydro. Essentially, the president had sort of a disempowerment sort of uh, milestone. So. Brazil cooled down, but we're hoping it heats back. We, it's expected to heat back up. Yeah. Ordinarily, I won't because I feel like we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, ordinarily, I would go around the horn, and I feel like you probably have some thoughts on Argentina and Chile and other places. But mm-hmm. we'll leave it as Mexico is hot. Let's move to the next topic. Let's go with solar plus storage, the, the, the famed next phase of our industry. Uh, it's definitely hot. So we're working with our fusion product. We have an exciting new Additive technology we'll be introducing at the storage show in December mm-hmm. in San Francisco. So, uh, oh, fantastic. It's, yeah, but we, we're seeing a lot of opportunity for solar plus storage. Wonderful. We'll keep our ears out for that. Well, similarly, how about hotter hype? Microgrids are the future of the grid. In fact, so grids will be disaggregated and no longer centralized in terms of nodal and transmission, but rather will uh, fragment into microgrids, uh, feeding each other sort of back to the uh, the early 1900s, late 1800s model original, right? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways to slice it. There are 3,000 utilities in the United States alone. I'm really excited about, you know, some of the, any grid that has a diesel associated with it. I, you know, that tremendous opportunity there. And you, you're specifically referring to disrupting the diesel generation side of it? Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. Okay. Uh, but beside that, I'd actually go the other way, where I'm a big fan of thinking through 
regionalization where the grids become less of fiefdoms mm. and there are some sovereignty and ego-driven decisions about how grids like the California independent grid is operated, that if we can sort of uh, transition past that and include, give other folks a seat at the table uh, for you know adjoining states, I think there's a huge opportunity to eliminate the duck curve. A couple strategic transmission lines, it could be DC lines, uh, would radically transform the grid. So I think there's an opportunity to save costs at virtually no investment, incorporate a much greater share of renewables. Very interesting. So you're an investor, one who likes to be out on what I think is often the bleeding edge of innovation and technology. So I'd love to know, hot or hype, do you feel like the blockchain has a place as it relates to energy in our future transaction process? Well, ideally, you're on the leading edge, not the bleeding edge. <laughs> um, so blockchain is one of those things that like, you know, I'll probably look back 10 years from now and go, wow, I was just too stupid to really understand that. So I don't get it. I haven't invested the time to figure it out. I'm more of a, you know, nuts and bolts and software to the extent we can harvest more energy kind of guy. Right. So I, I, I haven't got my head into it, to be honest with you. Hey, Dan, so moving on from hot or not, let's uh, stay on uh, one more uh, topic that's on my mind. The first time we chatted, you guys were launching a product called True Capture. How's that going? Uh, thanks for asking. So we've initiated half a dozen field trials, hundreds of megawatts of systems we're evaluating to really validate true capture and uh, just to um, refresh folks' memories. What true capture is, is a way to follow the sun that can produce more energy. Let me uh, just back up for a sec. Back in the late 80s with my colleagues at PG&E um, and others in the industry, we came up with this backtracking algorithm, which works super well for a perfectly flat site in a sunny area. And so, um, you know, as the sun, when the sun comes over the horizon, you're at horizontal and then you gradually track to an angle and then track conventionally and then eventually go back to zero. That works really well for those sites, but literally nothing has changed in that algorithm in 26 years. And so, well, the world is not flat in real sites for most mm -hmm. of the real sites we're working on. And so using this independent row technology, we figured out that with smart sensors in our, our system that we could dynamically track and we could do off-axis tracking in uh, conditions that aren't perfectly clear. So we launched these field trials around the world. We have uh, most in the US, a few overseas. And I'm really pleased, super excited to say that the empirical results coming back are exceeding the predictions we made and the models we created. And so we'll, we'll, we've submitted some technical papers and we'll be presenting those results and uh, sharing that with IEs uh, over the coming months. I think it's something that's really overlooked in the marketplace, Dan. When selling a tracker technology, how much of the sale is on the hardware and how much of the sale is on the software in 2017? I mean, you just, you bought, we did talk about, you know, you bought this whole data integration uh, company uh, out, of, out of Berkeley and you integrated them in to kind of bring True Capture and integrate NextFusion and uh, a couple of these things together, right? And bring big data to the table. If I'm a, if I'm a tracker sales guy right now, or if I'm a developer, how much of my conversation is really around the software and the algorithms and the AI and all this stuff versus the hardware these days? We've really found the you know, leading customers are moving much more to information technology. Right. Um, and so the intelligence systems are definitely the, uh, you know, the wave of the future. Mm -hmm. And so we have these, we've 
been doing that the hard lifting for many years where we have sensors and wireless communication and mesh network systems already deployed at pretty much all our systems have them. So now we're able to use that both for better operational uh, metrics. Uh, we spoke about the, how we dealt with the hurricanes earlier and then evaluated the post-hurricane performance, but also get more yield out. And that's what these customers really care about. You know, if you talk about 1%, that's exciting. If you start talking about 5 or 6%, right. I mean, it's absolutely transformational. So uh, depending on the site, we're going we're gonna to be able to get more yield out of these systems and be able to operate them in ways to produce more energy. And so uh, for me, that's really, that's really the future. And so we're, we're looking at not just with trackers, but with you know, inverters and, and all aspects of solar. I mean, eventually we'll have, you know, these kind of sensors integrated in panels. There's already optimizers. Right. But, you know, as you go forward, there's just so much more energy to ring out of these systems. Mm. And so to me, that is, that's the future of solar and the energy industry. I love it. And, and there will be any number of business models that surface between now and, uh, and then as, as we continue to evolve. I'd like to take a moment to be reflective because... As we've discovered over the you know ninety plus minutes that we've had a chance to really chat here and dig into your career and the path of all of your different uh, ventures, uh, I'd like to look back over what you've learned and understand if you have any like career course corrections that you would that you would give yourself at twenty five or thirty, right? So if you looked back, for example, if we just take power light as what I think was one of the key cornerstones of you, of your early career uh, post PG&E uh, if you had to do it over today in 2017 what well, one thing would you do differently and similar to that I'd love to as we discuss it understand what did growing these startups teach you about business well thanks for the question first let's speak about powerlight so powerlight was the right type of company to build from the mid 90s through 2007 when we uh, sold it to SunPower and merged there but would not be the right company for today. It was right then because it was a vertically integrated company. And the industry, the solar industry, was at an earlier time. Just as the automobile industry was at an early place when Henry Ford determined that the Model T and a vertically integrated business model was what was needed in the automobile industry. In his case, uh, there were a lot of mom-and-pop manufacturers. He needed to control supply chain and the whole experience. And process in order to drive costs down and improve quality. That's where the industry was in 96 when Tom and I, you know, really uh, brought, made Powerlight the number one large-scale system, solar system provider. Uh, but that's not the right model today. If you look at any, any industry when it goes to scale, you can't be the best in the world at everything, in every aspect. And so today, modern automobiles, the companies focus on final product design, brand, financing, and they let the you know, tire manufacturer make the tire and the, the radio manufacturer make the radio and, and so forth. And that's sort of where the solar industry is, where you have, um, it's at a scale, so you need to pick the aspects of your uh, company and technology that you want to be best in the world at. Right. Now, relative to things... You know, I've learned, so when I was in my, you know, mid-20s and we were uh, doing these um, startup companies, you know, there was a lot of ferociousness about trying to drive things forward quickly and um, a lot of intensity and, and 
you know, that had its place. Uh, at this point in my career, uh, what we're really trying to do is cultivate uh, team members to let other people have opportunities to excel in their areas of expertise, mm -hmm. and then to, to really build a world-class team that has endurance and staying power. And, you know, to be able to work with a lot of the same executives as we have here, for, you know, 15 years plus, and have that sort of stable team, you've, we've had to really focus on those sort of enduring qualities and, and always challenge ourselves to get better. And so I think we have built that enduring culture and we've also learned about how to have an open framework and enable uh, other folks to shine. So there's a big difference in sort of our style today versus where we were uh, 15 years ago. Gotcha. So Dan, what one thing do you consistently do that yields the greatest impact or results in your professional or personal life? For me, a, a short exercise session first thing in the morning is really important to sort of keep me going and keep my energy good. What I like to do is swim in the morning or do a, do a light workout. And I, for me, it's only about 30 minutes that I need, but uh, that really helps keep me sane and, and keep me feeling good. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I love to see leaders who, uh, who focus on self-care. I think the answer to this is probably LinkedIn, but where can people find you? How can they engage with you? And how do you like for folks to, to reach out and, and sort of contribute and, and touch base with you? Yeah, I try to make myself available. Uh, folks can always drop me a note on LinkedIn. I don't always respond, but I do my, my level best. We've tried over the years to really support also um, younger folks that have ideas about, you know, or looking for input about how their career grows. We'll end here with the final question, as we always do, Dan. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? Dan, what's in your crystal ball? We spoke earlier in the interview about software and information technology and so forth. I think that the power of this is underestimated or, or maybe not thought about very often. I think appliances such as refrigerators and, and so forth we use in our homes in the future, near future, hopefully we'll be shipping with radios. These are very inexpensive. It'd be easy to receive signals from the local grid about the uh, real-time cost of power. They can pre-cool if they're, in this example, if power is inexpensive or, you know, let it the fridge go up a degree or two if it's getting warm. I think there's a lot, same thing with electric cars. You could either charge or at a higher rate, a medium rate, or in the near future, hopefully discharge. So I think these things can work with the grid and I think provide other, you know, values to help continue lower costs and allow a much greater integration of renewables than we're, we'd ever have imagined. And so, um, I see this interconnectedness feature with uh, capabilities that are automatically enabled um, and could be user adjusted, but you wouldn't need to unless you wanted to, to sort of optimize how the, the power sector works across a variety of power generation technologies and load technologies in a way that just keeps lowering costs and providing greater convenience for, for customers. But it also would, I think, really help renewables come into the fore. Dan Sugar, the Suge, one and only. Appreciate you being here with us today and sharing your insights. Hope that you have a wonderful day. Appreciate the thoughtful questions, Nico. Thank you for the opportunity. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors. And you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. 
I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.